Today is the day that the Lord has made. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. And everybody said? Amen. Amen and amen. Well, if there's one thing I could tell you, it'd be this. Times, they are a-changing. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I remember a day when employers, when employers would hire the best and the brightest. I saw a sign the other day that uh, helped me figure out who we're hiring today. I want to show this to you. We're now hiring people who will show up. (laughs) That's where we are as a society. As a society, we don't hire the best and brightest. We hire people who will show up. Our standards have just gotten lower and lower, and they keep getting lower. So I'm going to ask you a question. Please do not answer this question out loud. Share your answer with the person next to you. But here's the question. Chapel, I want you guys to do this too. Downstairs, everyone, I want you guys to do this with the people next to you, okay? Answer this question. Should we have given every kid a trophy just for showing up. Let me stop you right there and answer it for you. (laughs) No, we should not have done that. It's been devastating for a generation. And because it's been devastating for a generation, it's been devastating for society. Because here's what's happened. Kids learned real fast that the trophy is meaningless. And therefore, it's meaningless to show up. And those kids became adults. And they don't show up to work because they've learned that the reward is meaningless and showing up is meaningless and it has no value. So take that generation's mentality and apply it to Christianity. And what happens is, you guessed it, the standard just gets lower and lower. Christianity now is just about getting into heaven. That's the summation of the Christian faith for a whole generation is just getting into heaven Rather, listen to me, rather than being a part of God ushering in his kingdom of heaven on earth. Instead, Christianity just becomes about getting into heaven by our personal little silent faith in Jesus. And we think as long as we do that, then we have accomplished what God wants for our lives. Hashtag nope. No, there is so much more God has for us. Does he want us to have a faith in Jesus and and go to glory one day? Without question. Jesus' mission was to come save us and to pull us into his mission. But we've lowered our standard. See, we don't seek to live lives that glorify God anymore. We seek to live lives that get likes and hearts on social media from people we barely know. We make sure our kids get to sports but we rarely read the Bible with them. This isn't true for Peace Church. This is a very generous and giving church, but for many Christians out there, they give a dismal amount of money to the work of the gospel, while at the same time ensuring that they have every Western luxury available to them. Then we judge people in the ways that they share the gospel when we ourselves never share the gospel. Here's the problem. Our standards just keep getting lower and lower and lower. And then we have the audacity to complain when culture around us is crumbling. When we find ourselves having the same standard as everybody else, we have to ask ourselves, church, are we really any different? 
You see, the problem that we are facing as a society is something that Jesus confronted 2,000 years ago. See, we, we will point to everyone else as justification for what we do. But everyone else is lowering their standards. And so here's a scary question for you. You have to think about this. Is God lowering his standards? No. Here's what I will submit to you today. Not only does God not change his standard based on time and society and culture, God's standard is nothing short of perfection. And that should be haunting to us. Today we are starting a new sermon series called Haunting. This is a part two to a very popular series we did a year ago, if you were with us, called Haunting. And this is a series where we are just looking at some of the, quote-unquote, scary words of Jesus, those words of Jesus that just stick with us. And the words of Jesus today truly fit into that category as we read these words of Jesus Christ himself, who says, you must be perfect. We're going to find out what that means today. So would you please, in your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 43 to 48. That's on page 1030 if you're using the Bibles we've provided. As you are turning there, let me give you some context. This teaching of Jesus comes right smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most famous sermon. It's what propelled him to superstardom during his time. The Sermon on the Mount is the most quoted sermon in all of human history And the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, in many ways, pave the way for the Christian moral ethic. You see, the rest of the New New Testament continue to expound upon what Jesus teaches here. And what he gives us in this teaching is unparalleled in human history. And so with that, would you hear the word of the Lord, the words of our Lord, Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same." And if you greet only your brother, what more, are you than, uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. Let's pray, and we'll continue. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, as we examine these critical words for our life and our faith, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and protect my words this morning, that they may not be subject to the twisting of the devil and they may be in accordance with your plan for us this morning. And so we thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we do have secure in Jesus. And I pray that our pursuit of holiness is guided by nothing less than the Holy Spirit himself. And it's in the precious, perfect, and powerful name of Jesus that we pray these things. And everyone said, amen and amen. So I remember when I was in middle school. Any middle schoolers here? Well, I remember when I was in middle school, someone posed this thought experiment, this question to me. They said to me, what is the least I can do and still get into heaven? And being a middle schooler, I 
wasn't really prepared to answer a question like that. And then they, they could see I was struggling and they said, well, let me put it another way. They said, put it like this. What's the worst thing I can do and still get into heaven? Now, I look back now, in a sense, here's what they were asking. They were saying, what is God's standard for entry into heaven? Does the sign on the door of heaven now say, now accepting anyone who will show up? Jesus shows us that God does not lower his standard. And so here's the main point I'd have for you this morning. Here's what I'd want you to take away. In a world that lowers the bar, Jesus sets a standard of perfection. In a world that lowers the bar, Jesus sets a standard of perfection. And as we walk through our passage today, we're going to pull out two things that I think help to emphasize Jesus' teaching here. First one is this. Jesus' standard is not about undoing the law, but about doubling down on love. The second thing we're going to see is that Jesus' standard is not about being good, It's about being godly. So number one, Jesus' standard is not about undoing the law, but about doubling down on love. So thanks to YouTube and Google, everybody thinks they are a Bible scholar these days. I went to seminary and I could give a teaching and after that teaching, someone would raise their hand and say, yeah, well, I watched this guy on YouTube And then I want to take my own Bible and knock myself out with it. Because here's the reality. Here's what you have to understand. The the twisting of God's word is the devil's first and primary trick. It is what he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. And that fool tried to do it against Jesus in the great temptation. And here's what I'm going to tell you. He is still trying to do it. And one of his best ways is through the mode of modern technology what we find on YouTube and Google. And again, I'm not saying everything on there is bad. But here's what I'd say to you. If you have a question about what the Bible says, if you want to know what the Bible says, I'm going to give you a really radical idea. I'll give you a real radical challenge here. If you want to know what the Bible says, read the Bible. No, no, I I mean, read the Bible daily consistently in its fullness. Read the Bible and I trust the Holy Spirit will lead and guide you. You got to trust and know your Bible. Because here's the confusing thing about this verse. I think a lot of people when they read this passage here, they think that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. Listen to me, he's not. In fact, we don't know exactly what he's quoting. Here's what he said. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, that phrase isn't found anywhere in any historical records. So we're left to believe that was a common popular phrase among his time. Jesus is not quoting the Old Testament here. He's quoting part of an Old Testament verse, but he's probably quoting a common, uh, um, common like rendition or understanding of that verse, but it's not from the scriptures. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, that's basically like if Jesus was saying to us, you know how people say, like here, here'd be a for instance. It's like if I said to you, you know how people say God works in mysterious ways? Like that's not actually a Bible verse. There's some, maybe some loose ways you could tie that to the Bible, but that's not actually quoting the Bible. 
That's kind of what's happening in this verse here. Jesus isn't pointing back to the Old Testament law to undo it. He's pushing back on what the culture was saying about God at the time. And at the same time, he's doubling down on love, which is the summation of the Old Testament law. To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus is kind of quoting, or, or what the culture was kind of picking up on, was from Leviticus 19, which simply says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Nothing about hating your enemies. Because church, you need to understand, what happened then is what happens now. People have a cultural understanding of the Bible. Or let me just say it plainly. People have a Google understanding of the Word of God, not a true understanding of what the Word of God actually says. And it's because Christians aren't even reading their Bibles. It's on your phone. I mean, how easy could it be? It's on your phone and we don't even read it. What the Old Testament actually says, again, is Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. But people, the people of Jesus' time, hear me on this, they do the same thing that we do. See, what we do is that we, we blend cultural norms with parts of God's truth, and we end up just birthing this ugly baby of half-truths and warped moral ethic. But we think it's Scripture. And that's what people create memes about, and that's what people post on YouTube about, and it's just leading the world astray rather than just getting ourselves in God's Word and seeing the beauty there. Here's another way to understand what, what Jesus is saying. It's like he's saying to them, you have heard, you have heard incorrectly the word of God applied to your lives. So let me flip that on its head so that you can know what it truly means to follow God. No, church, no, people, we don't hate our enemies. That's not what the church of God does. We love them and we pray for them. Why? Because this is what it means to be a child of God, rather than lowering our standard to follow the world, which is what everyone else does. You got to hear what Jesus is saying here. He's saying there is nothing special about doing what everyone else is doing. The rest of the world hates their enemy. The rest of the world is divided, but we're not like them. That's not us. We are children of God. God is our father, and we do what our father does. Look at verse 45. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. What we do for those we love is what we do for our enemies. We love and pray for them. And listen to, listen to me, church. Like, I don't know about you, but this sounds odd to me. There's parts of me that this, this, is, this sounds counterintuitive to me. But if God is treating everyone equally, giving everyone the same chance, then so should we. Good guys and bad guys both get the same sun to work under. The question is for you, what are you going to do with what God has given you? Because we are more like God when we love our neighbor and our enemy. And I get it, and I get it. Listen to me, church. Let me just level with you for a moment. I get it. This is hard. Like, this does not feel like a time we should love our enemies. This feels like a time where we should put a stake in the ground, put a flag in the ground, and declare truth. This is not a time for love. This is a time for war. That's what it feels like for me. But that's not what our Lord calls us 
too. It feels like I just want to be divisive. I want to take a stand. I want to fight. I want to declare truth. And I think a lot of us here, we feel like that. We, the things are not just divided, but bitterly so. The hot topics of our day are not just difference of opinions, people. They are very heated things. And some of them have to do with lies and truth. We're talking about things of, of the matter of good and evil here, about life and death. I don't want to love people who are opposed to truth, life, and goodness. It's hard. It's hard to treat the opposition with love when it feels like this is a time to take a stand, not a time to love. But here's where the Lord had a real fatherly conversation with me. And I hope you would write this down. Love is not giving up. It is not giving in to our enemy when we love them. Love is not giving up. Love is not surrendering your morals or your values or the truth. But it may mean surrendering your pride. It may feel like ending a conversation before you get to make your point. Because, hear me, the point is love. Love is the victory, not winning every argument. You are never called to win every argument, but you are called to love those with whoever you are having an argument with. For the Christian, we don't give up on law. We don't give up on truth. We don't give up on what's right, but we do double down on love. Because changing someone or something normally doesn't happen when we fight until we're proven right all the time. It does happen in truth, but it happens through the power of love. Christians in the house, we are called to double down on love. And the reason is found in our second point here. Because Jesus' standard is not about being good. It's about being godly. Let's read our verses 46 to 48. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, a very hated group of people back then, do not even, hate, do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles, that just basically means everybody else. Do not, doesn't everyone else do the same? And then he says, and then Jesus says to us, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You must be perfect. Why? Because the rest of the world, that's not your standard. God is your standard. And God is perfect. So you are to be perfect. The teaching here is pretty clear. If your standard is as low as the world around you, that is nothing special. If you think that you are a good person because you can point to what everyone else is doing, then for Jesus, you are missing the mark. Jesus is telling us our standard is not the world around us. It is God. But the Christian life is not about being good. It's about being godly. Like God, not like the world. But don't get ahead of me. I know you are. So just stop for a second. Come back. I'll ask it for you. Is Jesus really calling us, we who are broken sinners, is he truly calling us to a standard of perfection? I mean, isn't that setting us up to fail? Like, here's what I'd say to you. If that was your knee-jerk reaction to this, I bet it's because you misunderstand what Jesus means by perfect. Now, I'll be honest with you. When, when I hear the word perfect, like when I first read this passage, 
When I think about perfection, here's, here's kind of where my, my mind went to. I, I think of a beautiful porcelain vase with no cracks and no, finger, no fingerprints. That's perfect. Like, if you're like me, like, when I hear perfection, I think that means being dressed up all the time, clean-shaven, you never laugh, you always say the right thing at the right time in a quiet manner, no personality so that you never offend anybody, you never have anything wrong, uh, you never have anything wrong, um, go wrong in your life, and all the while you're raising perfectly obedient children. Like, if, if you think that, because... There's times where my mind goes there too. But if you think that, it's because you think of being perfect as being good rather than being godly. Now, the word here that Jesus uses per, for perfect in the original language is the word teleos. Uh, you may have heard that if you study apologetics, the theological argument for God. But Jesus says you must be teleos. You must be perfect. And here's what this means. It means having reached its end, completion, or perfect. Now, this is, this is not about being a perfect porcelain vase. When Jesus calls us to perfection, he's not calling us to be a, a baby that never cries. Teleos, perfect, is, is, is about having spiritual maturity. It's, it's talking about having something without missing part. It's about reaching our fullness in the sense that we are now complete, that we are perfect. It's about being presentable to God rather than being accepted by the world. Jesus is not calling us to be good in the world's eyes. He's calling us to find our fulfillment and our fullness in God. Now, writing over 150 years ago, J.C. Ryle was a pastor who spoke on this passage, and I love what he says here. This is from 1856. He says, a standard of conduct like this may seem, at first sight, extravagantly high, but we must never content ourselves with aiming at one lower. Now, men in the house, listen to these next words. Do we flinch at the test? Do we find it impossible to do good to our enemies? If that be the case, we may be sure that we have yet to be converted. As of yet, we have not received the Spirit of God. Ouch. Do you see what this pastor is saying from 150 years ago? He's saying in no uncertain terms what I think Jesus is saying here. Because Christians, Christians, we have the Holy Spirit, which means we can do great things. We have the Holy Spirit, which means we can do what Christ has called us to. Listen to me. If you heard this call of Jesus' perfection and you think, I can't do that then maybe you may call yourself a Christian, but maybe you haven't experienced true conversion yet. Yeah, these are haunting words. What Jesus calls us to is grand, it's great. And here's the thing, when our Lord and Savior calls us to something, do you know what our rightful response is? Do you know what our rightful response is when our Lord and Savior calls us to something? It's, yes, my King, that's our response when Jesus calls us to something. If Jesus calls us to something and you think, oh, I can't do that, here's the thing. You're acting like a little brat. When we are sons and daughters of the king, when our king calls us to something, we say, yes, my king. And do you know why? Because we know that he's good. And he would not call us to something that he wasn't going to give us the power to do. 
He's not going to set us up to fail. He is a good king who leads us in the path of righteousness. And so, church, how do we do this? Like, what does this actually look like? What does this mean for us later today on the way home or on our way to work tomorrow or for the rest of our lives? What do we do here? Well, let me give you just a couple quick challenges. Number one, our perfection gives the world a window into heavenly happiness. Now, I know in the Christian realm, we'd rather talk about joy, not happiness, but let's just camp out on this for a moment. Let's go back to what J.C. Rowell said 150 years ago, because I think this is a, a timeless truth. He said, who can fail to see that nothing would so much tend to increase happiness as the spread of Christian love, which is recommended here by our Lord? Let us all remember this. Those who think that true religion has any tendency to make men unhappy are greatly mistaken. It is the absence of it that does this, not the presence of it. True religion has the direct contrary effect. True religion tends to promote peace and charity and kindness and goodwill among men. The more that men are brought under the teaching of the Holy Spirit, the more they will love one another and the more happy they will be. Did you catch this? Jesus is giving us a happier way to live, a better way to live. It does not mean it will be roses all the time, but it is a better way than what the world has. Imagine if the entire world lived like this. Church, let me ask you a question. Like if someone bickers and fights with you, does it really make you happier to bicker and fight back with them? If someone persecutes us for our faith, do you think hating them will really give us joy. Maybe Jesus knew what he was talking about. So let it start with you. Because when we live like this, people get a window into heaven rather than a mirror held to their face, reflecting just what's broken in them and in the world. Church, when I think about Christians, when I think about those Christians who will actually change the world, it's not those on social media, engaging in Facebook debates. When I think about the Christians who are going to change the world, it is the truly the salt of the earth people who day in and day out in their lives, at home, at work, on their way to work, and on their way home, to work, on their way home from work, simply do what Jesus has called them to do. I think that's when we see the world change is when the salt of the earth people out there are just living like Christ calls us to. Day in and day out. And as odd as it may sound, maybe Jesus did know what he was talking about. But this leads to the last thing that I want to encourage you with. Our perfection comes from imputation, not reputation. So let's end with a big theological word here. Let me learn you something. Imputation. The wise seasoned Christian would do well to have this in their back pocket. Imputation means that our perfection, our righteousness, does not come from within us. It does not come by, by working hard or by trying to be good. It comes from imputation, which means, it, that's a Latin accounting term, which means to apply to one's account. This is so important for the Christian faith. Hear me on this. Meaning God takes the righteousness of Jesus who is perfect and perfectly righteous and perfectly obedient in faith. 
which makes him, by the way, the perfect sacrifice for humans. But God takes this perfectness of Jesus and he imputes it. He applies it to our account. Please hear me. This is the most beautiful thing you're going to hear all day. This means that when God looks at the account of our life, when we put our faith in Jesus, he sees not our sins, but he sees the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus. He sees his son. Because when we place our faith in Jesus, God takes the righteousness of Jesus and imputes it, counts it towards us. That's why we sing, what a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. Because when we place our faith in Jesus, does he die for our sins? Yes, and that is worthy of praise forever alone. But not only that, but the righteousness that Jesus has is now accredited to us. What a beautiful name it is. I'm telling you right now, why would you want to follow anybody else? We no longer adhere to the world's standard. We don't live lives that lower the bar, but by, but by the power of the Spirit, we seek to live lives in ways that God already sees us. Did you hear me on this? We seek to live lives in ways that God already sees us because by faith, God has accredited Jesus' perfectness to us. And so you best be raising your voices when you sing unto your Savior. You are ever going to learn more and more of the amazing things that he's done for you and for me. And when we fully understand this, Jesus' words are no longer scary. They're actually life-giving because we can show the world a glimpse into heaven, a glimpse into something better, that we don't do away with God's law, but we double down on love, knowing that it's not about being good, but about being godly. We don't sink to the world's standards. We rise to Jesus' standard of being perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, knowing that he will be there when we do fall. But by the power of the Spirit, he calls us to continue to move forward. So raise the bar, Peace Church. Amen.